Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you folks out, uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready for, uh, for another evening of Adult Bible School. I know these schedules can be a little bit of a trial after a while, uh, you know, every evening, and especially some of you are working. I know how it is if you're out in this weather, this, uh, these cool uh, days, it can be kind of uh, relaxing when you get inside, and uh, when you're inside, sometimes you relax, and you relax a little too much, and uh, it's hard to concentrate on what the speaker is saying. I thank you for your attention, evening to evening, and I want to continue to try to uh, see that you're with me and that we're, uh, we're working together. Uh, this evening, we want to look at the church as a family, and uh, I trust that we can be challenged with some of those concepts uh, this evening. In the beginning, God created the world. He created a perfect environment. Plants and animals thrived in that environment. But the crowning glory of God was not the plants and the animals. The crowning glory of God was man, mankind. The crowning glory of creation was man. Let's all stand together and read several verses from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> Breaking in at verse 21. Just follow along as I read and then stay standing. <clears throat> and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. It's as far as I I'm going to read, but just stay standing for a minute longer or so. So here we have the establishment of the first family. The family was a perfect creation by a perfect God. Today, this evening, I want to look at the... Uh, family in a spiritual sense. <clears throat> the Bible refers much to the concept of God's people as being family. We speak of God the Father. We speak of the brothers and sisters. This is Brother Mike and Sister Linda. Uh, we, we talk about, uh, there's many references to family. <clears throat> All of us are part of a earthly family, we can relate to this concept of being part of a family. And tonight I want to look at uh, some of the things as it relates to being part of a spiritual family. <clears throat> if we're thinking of earthly families, what, uh, how would you describe an earthly family? What are components that typically make up a family? Children, okay. Father and mother. Father and mother and children. That's fairly typical. Father, mother, children. Those are components of a typical family. In this day and age, there's, there are very many non-traditional families. And unfortunately, I think that marred image of what 
modern society is projecting as a family might make it harder for some of these concepts to sink in like they should. That's just an aside. Uh, what are characteristics of a well-ordered family? We talked about three components, father, mother, and children. What is it? Tradition. Tradition? Okay. Keep going. Love. Discipline. Accountability. Respect. Okay, just a minute. Over here. Happiness. Okay. Responsibility. Gratefulness. Communication. Order. Well, man, I'm about ready to take a seat and let you folks teach. I think this is good. <laughs> okay, others. I like this. Popcorn. Laughter. Okay. That happens occasionally. Thankfully. <laughs> Hopefully. Okay. <laughs> what else? Bonding. Okay. Relationship, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Worship. Okay. Great. Growth. Keep coming. A system. Okay. Encouraging, okay? Discipline. Discipline. You know, I don't think I even have that in my notes, but that, yeah, that's a tremendous aspect of the concept, and it is likened very much in Hebrews to the concept of the Father's love for his children. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Anyone else? Humility, okay? Growth. A lot of what you're talking about can be uh, loosely classified just in Christian graces, but it's, uh, uh, it's especially uh, in the development of a Christian family, it's part of the beauty of a family. And uh, I tell you what, when there's sand in the gears in the family, it can be a pretty tough go. And when there's love and growth and discipline and relationship and these kinds of things that you were saying, there can be a tremendous, a tremendous amount of, uh, of uh, beauty and of, of function going on. You may sit down. Thank you for your help. <clears throat> so how does God, you, you understand the concept. I mean, it's not a new concept uh, about being a, a part of a family, and this is God's family that we're talking about tonight. So how do we go about becoming one of God's children? How do we join God's family? We want to look at that first of all. How many of you tonight have children? Okay, that's a good turnout. I think we have accordingly more parents here than we have, uh, have children. Uh, there's something so exciting about the birth of a brand new baby. Judy and I were married almost 10 years before we had our first, uh, first child that, uh, that was full term and, and lived, and it was a it was a blessing. <clears throat> you know, God designed man and woman in such wonderful ways. God designed the woman to carry this unborn baby. During this time of gestation, this new life, this life that's still not born is developing. I think there's even some uh, type there that uh, there's a time of preparation before that child often is born into the family of God. There's a, a series of circumstances that can bring that about. The parents in those first weeks, probably not aware at all that anything is happening. But then a 
test can confirm what the suspicions were that in fact there is a new life beginning, there's a new life developing. Now this new life isn't born yet. The life is not ready to exist on the outside of his mother. For parents who are looking forward to having children, this can be a very exciting time. I almost envy some of you younger married people that have that, uh, some of those prospects in your, in your uh, uh, to look forward to. You know, each, the days pass and there's changes that keep happening in this growing, in this developing uh, child. The anticipation grows. Finally, the time of the birth has come. How well I remember the night when my wife informed me that her time had come. And after some preparations, we went to the hospital. There, after many long and difficult hours, and I think my wife would attest to that, our daughter was born. Our faith became sight. The thing that we had anticipated so long was now reality. The baby had a brand new start in life. The baby was now born. It was a new beginning. For this child, all things were new. The old things had passed away, and all things had become new. This was a brand new world. But that wasn't the end of the story. <clears throat> now we had this new baby to take care of. You know, in those early days, those babies are really quite helpless. They eat, they cry, they sleep. Uh, <clears throat> they mess their diapers. You know, the li life of my wife was almost totally consumed with the care of this new daughter. Judy would worry, is the baby getting enough to eat? Was the, why is the baby crying? Is she hungry? Is she wet? Does she have a stomach ache? Could it be an ear infection? When the baby was not wanting for attention. The baby was being well looked after. Her mother and father were very interested and concerned that she progress in a good and in a healthy manner. Aunts, uncles, grandparents showed great interest. You know, there's a lot of parallels in the life of a child in the natural family and the child in the spiritual family of God. In a very real sense, it is the birth of that child that cements it into the family to which it was born. In John 3, we have the story of Nicodemus when he came to Jesus by night. <clears throat> he wanted to know more about this teacher. Nicodemus, I understand, a ruler of the Jews, possibly a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, he came at night, and I suspicion he came at night because he didn't want to be seen talking to this strange rabbi during the daylight hours. I'm just assuming that. Nicodemus recognized, I think, that Jesus must have come from God but he wanted to know more. And we have that interesting dialogue recorded there in John 3, verse 3. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I think this concept had Nicodemus puzzled, and probably rightly so. What was Jesus talking about? How could an adult person become born again? It just wasn't making sense, I don't think, to him. Sounds complicated. Sounded unlikely. <clears throat> but Jesus wasn't talking about a second natural birth. 
He was talking about a supernatural birth, a new spiritual birth, a brand new start. It wasn't the birth to earthly parents, but the birth into a heavenly, heavenly family where God himself is father. And under that new fatherhood, there's a whole new set of goals, a whole new family, new brothers and sisters, a new way of living, a new set of values, a new worldview, a new destination, a new inheritance, a looking forward to eternal life. There's a lot of implications about being coming apart of this heavenly family. Entering in by the new birth, not to that Stolzfus family you were born to, but to the heavenly family, the family of God. The new birth is what gains our entrance into the family of God. Peter speaks of the new birth as a start from incorruptible seed. 1 Peter 1, 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Our natural birth is an entrance into this temporal life, this veil of tears, this life that's beset by sickness, that's beset by cancers, that's beset by misunderstandings. But the new birth gives us entrance into the heavenly, eternal life. To enter into the new life, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. The message is still for us today. If we would enter God's family, we must be born again. Being born again, so crucial, so critical, that's how we start. But I think maybe we have, I don't know if we've short-sold or long-sold the gospel sometimes. I think that being born again is the first step. It's a necessary step. But I think some of Protestant theology would have us say that's an only step that's necessary. You do that, and you're good to go from then on. I was visiting with one of our customers recently, and, you know, these times, uncertain times of COVID, I think makes people more maybe open to discuss the things of God. I'm not sure. But uh, she was talking, and... I've, I've known her for a while. I don't know all of the family situation. I think there was a blended family, and uh, uh, she's a nice enough lady, but I wouldn't consider her. I mean, she wouldn't just seem like a, an unusually godly lady. Well, you know, I used to be in the church, Lowell. I used to be kind of plugged in. I don't think she attends at all anymore. And I, I took my children to church. My children, well, they're all saved, and they're all baptized, and uh, I don't know that any of them have been to church for I don't know how many years uh, one day when we were there I think they were going to pick up their son or their her son who was being released from prison or something uh, this is a little bit of an aside the new birth is important but I think to be realistic with people and say your troubles aren't necessarily all going to be over you're going to get a new set of problems but you have a way of dealing with them and that the Christian life I think can be well described by saying it's a long series of saying yes to the voice of God. And that first step is in the new birth. And if we make a practice of saying yes to the voice of God, he will bless our ways. 
but it's easier said than done sometimes. We're dealing with this old carnal flesh that we were born with. In, John, in uh, six, verse 16 of this passage that we're referring to, how do we earn the right to be born again and be qualified to enter God's family? The plan is laid out so succinctly in John 3:16. It's a very common verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Moving on, and I jotted... Uh, some of these main points down over here. I don't know how well you can see it from the back of the room there, but uh, that might help if you're taking notes. I don't know if anyone is or not, but uh, uh, it is the Father's love that qualifies us to be his children. First John, the epistle to John, chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope purifieth himself, even as he is pure. It's God's love that qualifies us to be his children. It's not like a farmer, a dairyman, picking replacement heifers. I like that one and that one and that one. The rest of you I'm going to take to the sale. Uh, you keep the good ones, you sell the rest. It's not that there's some humans that are good enough the way they are. But we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, as it says in Romans 3.23. Not one of us are good enough our own to merit salvation. Man tends to try to find justification, to try to find himself being made right by his self-efforts. A man that's wrapped up in his own self makes a very small package. <clears throat> Paul tells us, Titus 3, verse 5, is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. We are sinners by nature. We can never be good enough to earn salvation. There is a span that's separating ungodly man, sinful man from a holy God. And it was the love of Jesus Christ for us, his sacrifice that bridged that gap, that we can make that crossover from one side to the other, where a, where a sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God. There's some beautiful, beautiful concepts in that ministry of reconciliation that Jesus works in our hearts, in that ministry of reconciliation that we have an opportunity to minister and extend to others. <clears throat> Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is accepting God's love for us that qualifies us to be called sons and daughters in his wonderful family. 1 John 3, verse 2, beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Moving on to point number two, children take on their father's characteristics. Let's go back to that illustration of the natural birth. After that baby is born, there's great excitement, especially among the close relatives. What happens when the relatives get together to see the new baby? Susie, what happens? Do they call you Susie or you Sue by now? 
What happens when the relatives get together to see this new baby? They talk about who this baby looks like. And the grandma is there, and you know, coo, 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 and all of these funny little things. And, uh, and the aunts and the uncles or whoever try to figure out whose nose this baby got, and if the dimple is there, and if the ears are shaped like Grandma Byler, you know, whatever the situation is. Uh, as a child grows, it's interesting to watch him develop. People may say, Wow, when that little guy talks, he sounds just like his daddy. <laughs> or see how he walks? He just got that same gait. And you know, that, those comparisons can make some of us fathers, oh, I don't know, proud or ashamed, I'm not quite sure what, depends a little bit on what, we're, uh, what our uh, thought processes are. But it's interesting. Have you ever been out in the snow with a young child and you're striding along, making tracks in the fresh snow? And your child is coming along, and you see him there, <laughs> trying to match those those uh, those uh, strides that you're cutting for him. You know, our children, by default and by intention, uh, they look like us, and they tend to start taking on some of those characteristics of us, and that can be good, and it can be very humbling. <laughs> depending on the situation. <clears throat> As children of God, we have the privilege of bearing the image of our Father. Image bearers. That's a very interesting concept. We could talk a whole evening on being image bearers of our Father. You know that people would say about us, these people are different. There's something special about them, and rightly so. They act and look like their Father. <laughs> You know, as a subset in society, and you're not quite the minority that we are in Kansas, it seems like everybody you see out on the roads are conservative Anabaptists, or maybe not quite, but you see a lot of them here. Uh, people in our towns, in our places of business, maybe particularly where we come from, can see that we are belonging to some cultural subset. And that's kind of sobering because we become image bearers and there are ways that we can honor the image of our Father and there are ways that we can mar the image that he wants us to bear. God's children, we hope, look and act like their Father. 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. As God's children, <clears throat> we carry the image of our new Father. As we spend time in His presence, we assume more and more of His characteristics. We assume more and more of His characteristics. As we behold His glory, little by little, His character becomes our character. You know, in the time of Acts, I think of the, the scripture there where it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. It was like this was just an inescapable fact. I mean, it was just obvious that they had been with Jesus. Is that what people say about you? They took knowledge and they saw that Michael had been with his heavenly father. 
we take on the image of our Heavenly Father. Uh, as newborn babies in the family of God, hopefully people will begin to see the characteristics of our Heavenly Father. We've looked at that this now in a theoretical sense. What does it mean in practical terms to take on the characteristics of the Father in our new family? In Kansas, at least, and I'm going to just go out on a limb here and assume it might be the same in Lancaster County, our natu natural children are born with the carnal sin nature. They're selfish with their toys. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his followers to give to those who ask. If someone takes your coat, give him your cloak also. To go two miles with him that requests your company for one mile. You know, in fairly simple terms, I think Christ's message is encapsulated there in the Sermon on the Mount. Seems to be live sacrificially, submit gladly, not demand our rights, but to live a life of sacrifice. I find it sad that I think some of our Anabaptist friends have lost some of that concept in the last months and years. Sacrifice your rights. Submit gladly. Follow, not demand your own rights. Take your cloak, take your coat, give your cloak also. You know, children tend to strike back when others are fighting with them. Jesus tells his followers to turn the other cheek. We tend to love those who love us and kind of hold at arm's length, those who are holding us at arm's length. Jesus tells his followers to love their enemies. How are our lives today? Do they show that we are demonstrating the characteristics of our Heavenly Father? Are we still fighting over our toys and hitting each other and making sure we get the long end of the stick all the time? Have we taken on the characteristics of our Heavenly Father? Are we still living with the old nature we were born with? <clears throat> Point number three, life is different for one who has entered into God's family. We have a personal Abba Father. Abba Father. One of you pastors here, what, what is Abba? Abba Father, what does that mean? Anyone? Daddy? Poppy? whatever, a term of endearment, something different. Father is kind of that, this is my father here. <laughs> hey, that's my daddy over there. <laughs> and, uh, that, yeah, that's very good. Romans 8, verse 15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You know, Paul uses the term Abba Father to describe his heavenly uh, father, the heavenly father. In English, we use the term father to describe the male parent, but it's a formal term. There are other more endearing terms like daddy, poppy, whatever you are. I don't know, is there... Is there Dutch equivalence to endearing terms or weren't there any endearing uh, terms? In, in, uh, anyway, daddy, 
poppy, those kinds of things. I understand to call dad, to call God Abba Father, like calling our father daddy or poppy. Some years ago, there was a 17-year-old girl whose father was leaving on a ministry trip, and uh, the, uh, he found a note in his briefcase or something that read like this, Dear bestest daddy in the whole world, I hope and pray that your trip goes well. We miss you already, but are also glad for this opportunity to share with people in India and Nigeria. Thank you for being a godly leader in our home. We love you so much, and we will pray for you. Love, and then she signed her name. Uh, Daddy, Poppy. I have a friend who never knew her father. She was raised by a single mother and didn't experience the love of an earthly father. I feel sorry for someone like that. She said something like this, only God knows how much I wanted to be a daddy's girl. She never had that opportunity. The lady had problems relating to men, I think partly because she never felt the love of an earthly father. How many people in America today are growing up without the love of an earthly father? I think a marred image of an earthly father can make it hard for people to accept the love of the heavenly father. As earthly fathers, those of you here today who have children and image bearers of God, we can make it much easier for our children to trust in a heavenly father based on what they see modeled by us. Or we can make it harder. We can make it difficult for them to see the God who they need to follow. I think of the priest Eli. He was a man that was used of God, but he didn't seem to have the heart to restrain his children, his sons. One of you mentioned discipline in a, in a godly family. The people of God suffered with the evil practiced by Eli's son on Eli's, Eli's sons on Eli's watch. Our anger, our impatience can mar the father's image. How often are relational problems in our world due to people who haven't experienced the love of the Heavenly Father, haven't experienced the love of their earthly fathers? You know, today there's many fathers who've left their wives, left their families. Others are still at home, but they're not functioning as godly fathers. My heart goes out to people like that. You know, we don't have to worry about our Heavenly Father running off on the job. Earthly fathers disappoint Earthly fathers disappear, but our Heavenly Father is always there for us. He works all shifts and is there on weekends and holidays. A person who never knew the love of an earthly father can still be complete in God. God can help take the place of that earthly father a person never knew. Psalm 68, verse 5, the psalmist speaks of God as a father of the fatherless. That's a beautiful concept, a father of the fatherless. You know, I think we sometimes get an incomplete image of who God is. It's easy for us sometimes to see the judgment part of God. He's coming and he's going to be judging the earth in righteousness. People might feel that God is somehow this being that's just waiting to pounce on us when we do wrong. Is that how you earthly fathers did? You want your children to succeed. You want them to do well. You're there to encourage them and to help them. I think our Heavenly Father 
wants to see us succeed and do well. <clears throat> Some people see God as a God of condemnation. The next verse after 16 in John 3. God sent not his son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. A beautiful concept. As members of God's family, we have the wonderful privilege of having a father who loves us and wants us to succeed. He is our Abba Father. Moving on, our Father is looking out for us. Jude concludes his epistle with a beautiful acknowledgement and praise of our wonderful God. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Our loving Father is able to keep us from falling. He's looking out for us and to present us faultless before the throne so that we can have that peace, perfect peace in our hearts. Someday to protect us from evil today and someday to deliver us from the very presence of evil and the very possibility of evil. What a God we have. You know, there's other religions who are rabid about protecting their religion and their God. If someone missteps, there can be sabers rattling and threats going and talk of jihad or something like that. Uh, as Christians, we don't have to defend our God. To protect him from getting hurt, our God is looking out for us. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters are to support each other in spiritual warfare. Uh, Galatians 6.2, bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Ephesians 6 verse 12, I'm going to move very quickly on this part. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Not sure how it all goes from then on. There's a lot of people who are suffering from bondage, from attacks from the evil one. My wife was involved with uh, a situation, oh, in the last year or so, where there was a, a person that had suffered tremendously emotionally and uh, physically and spiritually uh, in her situation. Judy was accompanying her to some of the counseling sessions. And these were intense times. I mean, if all at once the counselee was ripping coverings off of people and pulling arms down when they were singing and praying, that kind of thing. These battles are real, but we owe it to each other to help each other with the armor of God, to help uh, to, uh, to liberate or to help to bring freedom to those people who are in spiritual warfare. Brothers and sisters are to keep each other accountable. How many of you remember when you were back as a teenager trying to give guidance to a younger brother or sister? Ever happened? How many of you remember how it felt when they jerked your ear or put an elbow in your rib at church when you weren't behaving? <clears throat> or, uh, you know, in the family of God, we have directives to help each other when we see faults in the church. Galatians 6, 2, I just referred to Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And probably the classic on that is Matthew 18. If you see a brother have, 
have a trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. You go with one or two witnesses, you go and, you, and uh, that whole process as that plays out. How many of you think you basically understand the process outlined in, in Matthew 18? More or less? Boy, you're not committal. Are you thinking this is a trick question? You, you know kind of what I'm talking about at least? Okay. Uh, how many of you practice it often? No takers. Okay. So I guess the next question, how many of you have practiced in the last couple of months or how many of you have practiced in the last couple of weeks maybe? Uh, you know, I think I understand the principle, but I find it hard to practice. You know, just recently or not so long ago, I came up with a situation. If I would have practiced it, I could have avoided a lot of hurt and a lot of problems on my, well, not my behalf, but I didn't. There was some pain, and some of that pain was because of, of my mishandling of the situation. Some time ago, we were hosting our small group at home, and we decided for the activity we're going to make stone soup. Do you ever make stone soup here? Different people brought uh, different things to contribute to the soup besides the stones. There was meat, vegetables, broth, salt, pepper, noodles, potatoes, and it was a delicious soup by the time the flavors were all blended and then cooked together and we'd taken the stones back out. But while this soup was simmering, we discussed church life and how each of us can contribute to the life of the church. We got into the subject of speaking into each other's lives, mentoring, exhorting, discipling, challenging, correcting, we agreed that these things were necessary, but acknowledged that they were hard to do. We discussed some of the reasons we refrained from speaking into each other's lives. You know, at communion, we historically have given lip service till we're willing to approach and to be approached. Do you talk about that here in, uh, at uh, Weavertown? <clears throat> but giving lip service to it and actually doing it are two different things. And it's difficult, I think, often to do it. I don't know for sure what all the reasons are. It's been said that hurt people hurt people, but healed people bring healing to people. Pray for the specific brother or sister until you're driven by a love and a burden for healing and restoration. I'm going to move on. Our time is, is fast fleeing. Your traffic, the horses and stuff on your roads move very slowly, but your clock is on full fast time. <laughs> <laughs> we are brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ. Our family is in transition. Our youngest son is uh, at school at Faith Builders. Our two daughters are married. We're feeling the absence. We're, we're in transition. We're empty nesters and almost don't know what to do with ourselves. Uh, as God's children, we are brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The implications are tremendous. Our earthly sons and daughters have love for each other that supersedes love for whoever else, and it might be changing now that a couple of them are married. 
But uh, there were pet names that one of our children had for her siblings. I'm not sure where the names Nuki and Bean came from, but uh, whatever they were worth, there they were. And though there was occasional spats, they loved each other fiercely. Our children are likely to defend each other, to protect each other from harm and danger. You know, in a general way, I'm not referring just to our family, but the younger ones in a family may hide behind the older ones when they feel threatened. Caitlin, I think, probably likes the protection of the older ones in her family. If mom or dad are gone and someone strange comes to the door of the house, the younger children would likely want the older brother to go answer the door. What can we expect as Christ's brothers and sisters? We get to be a part of Jesus' own family. I can even imagine Jesus, our big brother, sticking up for us. When the accuser of the brethren attacks, our brother Jesus has already won the victory over him, and we need to hide behind him and let him take care of Satan. Too often I cower in the presence and the fear from the presence and pressures of Satan. I can be rendered ineffective as I fall under that, under that, uh, uh, under his, under his focus, under his attack. I understand a lion can paralyze his prey with his loud roar. Jesus won the victory on the cross. The victory has already been won. It's signed, sealed, it's done. Satan may knock on our door with his weapons of fear, discouragement, false accusations, temptations, forbidden fruit, dishonesty. When he comes, we need to just send Jesus to the door. <laughs> the big brother, to answer the door. You know, it can be helpful even, I think, to pray specifically. Jesus, you go to the door. Satan is there. He's come back again. He's bringing up things that you've taken care of long ago. He's tormenting me again. Jesus, I'm scared. I'm worried. I know you won the victory. Would you just tell Satan, remind him of that, and I'm hiding behind you. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus has already dealt with the accuser of the brethren. He already won the victory. We go in our own strength. We fail. In Christ, we triumph. We can be paralyzed by the presence of our enemy, or we can be secure with sending our triumphant brother to answer the door. I think it is my last point. We are heirs together with Christ. Galatians 4, verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Listen how often sons comes up here. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then a John, an heir of God through Christ. This evening when I was writing on that, John mentioned, he can hardly get over that last point, that we are an heir together with Christ. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son and a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. 
Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Titus 3, 7, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How many of you have wealthy parents this evening? Okay. How many of you are looking forward to receiving a great inheritance someday? Okay. I might need about uh, one minute and 57 seconds, somewhere in there, okay? <clears throat> My parents were not particularly wealthy. They are both gone now. The inheritance has been settled and divided. We each got a, a nice amount, a modest amount, nothing huge, but it was, it was good. Judy's parents uh, are still with us. I'm not expecting a big inheritance from there either. But there were things in both of our families. My dad was called to the ministry at a young age. He served many years in the ministry. He grew up in a, we were in a fairly small world, but we grew up, I think, with a fairly big worldview. And uh, our house was open. I remember the tramp that came rolling down the road with his steel-wheeled wagon. He pulled in camped out behind the old chicken house, was there for, I don't know, close to a week. He said his name was John Smee. I don't know what it really was. Remember the man that we met on a vacation when we finally took a one, the whole family vacation to Colorado. Dad struck up a conversation with a kind of a hippie Jesus type person. Several days later, he came back and spent some time in our, at our home there in Kansas. Oh, there was a bobcat who came with his big two German Shepherd dogs. He stayed there for a while. We entertained international visitors. There was people from India that came through. Different people. Judy's father was ordained after a fairly stormy youth. Some of you remember his ministering to you probably in the mid-60s here. I think Weavertown had a tremendous revival during some of those times. Sanford didn't have a lot of money. He took his family, when he was still in his 30s, to Costa Rica, in the interest of spreading the gospel and expanding God's kingdom. He was never a wealthy man. By now, he's 90 years old, nearly blind with uh, macular degeneration. The family is helping to provide for their needs. I don't expect a big inheritance there. But there's an inheritance that we can look forward to that has nothing to do with the tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Jesus talks about an investment or an inheritance, an investment that will last for all of eternity. Matthew 6, verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Being joined heirs together with Christ allows us to have investments in heaven that will last for all of eternity. <laughs> you know, we can get 500000 from our parents, from a settlement of an estate. What's that going to do? 
It may last for 20 years if you're 20 years younger than your folks. And then you kick off. You head back to dust. That's really not going to help you a lot then. If you don't have a large inheritance to look forward to here, take heart. There's an investment plan where you can be heirs and joint heirs together with Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And those invest investments don't mature in 20 or 30 years, but they keep going on and on and on through the ceaseless ages of eternity. This evening, where are you in God's family? Have you entered by the new birth? Have you accepted Christ's work and the Father's love? Have you taken on the Father's characteristics? Is your father a personal Abba father, a daddy, a poppy father? Are we accountable to our brothers and sisters? Are we united against our enemies? Are we joining hands with them against uh, the enemy of our souls? Are we looking forward to sharing an eternal inheritance with Christ, our brother, the church, the family of God? What a privilege. What a blessing. Thank you. Uh,